Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us as we continue in the book of Sirach, our studies about practical application of wisdom for daily life. Now, this episode has been the most challenging episode to prepare on my behalf of the entire book of Sirach. And the topic for today is the evil wife and the good wife in the book of Sirach. And many of you may not have really had too many people encouraging you to read the book of Sirach. You may not have many uh, positive encouragements to study the book of Sirach. And one of the reasons why some folks want to avoid the book of Sirach is our topic today. In fact, I met one well-known, very esteemed Catholic professor who questioned the reliability of the entire book of Sirach due to its treatment of women. Let me give you a sentence from one conservative commentary on Sirach's view of women. It says, Sirach's misogynist attitude comes into its own in this section. Bad wives and daughters occupy 27 verses compared with only 10 for good wives. So it's pretty much stacked against wives, a very negative view. And I'm just guessing, this is a guess, but these verses may never have been read before on Catholic radio. And they're tough, I'll warn you. They're very tough and they're jarring. These verses are jarring to modern ears. And one commentator said, that these verses I'm about to read from Sirach are the worst that's ever been said about women and wives in the ancient world. And I was reading a very uh, scholarly commentary on Sirach, and he said, actually, that man hasn't done his homework. And he listed a whole bunch of quotations from the ancient world regarding women, and they were horrible. And so, Even in contrast, uh, this wouldn't have upset people two or three centuries before Christ, but it does today. But I'm going to explain how this fits in, in God's plan of redemption. And things got thrown off. The relations between men and women got terribly injured as a result of sin in Genesis chapter 3. And God has a plan to restore, but let's go back to Sirach starting with chapter 25 and verse 13. Any wound, but not a wound of the heart. Any wickedness, but not the wickedness of a wife. There is no venom worse than a snake's venom, and no wrath worse than an enemy's wrath. I would rather dwell with a lion and a dragon than dwell with an evil wife. The wickedness of a wife changes her appearance and darkens her face like that of a bear. Her husband takes his meals among the neighbors and cannot help sighing bitterly. Any iniquity is insignificant compared to a wife's iniquity. 
A dejected mind, a gloomy face, and a wounded heart are caused by an evil wife. Drooping hands and weak knees are caused by the wife who does not make her husband happy. From a woman, sin had its beginning, and because of her, we all die. An evil wife is an ox yoke which chafes. Taking hold of her is like grasping a scorpion. There is great anger when a wife is drunken. She will not hide her shame. I'll tell you, that passage takes my breath away. I just want to make it very clear. These are not my words. I am quoting from the canon of Scripture, the book of Sirach, what it says about the evil wife in Sirach chapters 25 and 26. This is perhaps one of the toughest passages of the Bible. You would say, not only do we need to get rid of Sirach, we should just get rid of the Bible. This is just over the top. Now, Sirach does devote half as much space, but he does devote space to the good wife. And this is what he says. Happy is the husband of a good wife. The number of his days will be doubled. A loyal wife rejoices her husband, and he will complete his years in peace. A good wife is a great blessing. She will be granted among the blessings of the man who fears the Lord. Whether rich or poor, his heart is glad, and at all times his face cheerful. A wife's charm delights her husband, and her skill puts fat on his bones. A modest wife adds charm to charm, and no balance can weigh the value of a chaste soul. Like the sun rising in the heights of the Lord, so is the beauty of a good wife in her well-ordered home. Like the shining lamp on the holy lampstand, so is a beautiful face on a stately figure. Now, those were the two passages, again, about double the evil wife uh, amount of space given to the good wife. Before I get started, I just want to give you a hint for what's coming later in the New Testament, where Sirach describes a good wife like the shining lamp on the holy lampstand. This is an exceedingly daring metaphor because he's comparing the good wife to the glories and the holiness of the holy lampstand in the temple itself. He's connecting her with the uppermost part of greatness in the Jewish mind in connection with God. So um, there's some terrible things comparing an evil wife to scorpions and bears and all this other stuff. But there's some hints of what's going to come later. All right, how do we handle this? Because this, this, is, this is a very difficult passage to try to get your head around. And what we want to realize is in the Scriptures, there is what's called progressive revelation. And I'm going to read you a sentence from the Navarre Bible, a Catholic study Bible. It says this, in the Old Testament as a whole, and particularly in some passages— like the ones we're at right now, one needs to remember that there is a progression, a gradual line of development 
in Revelation. And, you know, we're we're living in what's called a, a cancel culture because if anybody makes a mistake in the past or our history wasn't just perfect, just want to cancel the whole culture. And that's not necessarily a mature approach to people's weaknesses in the past. Now, you have weaknesses. I have weaknesses. It doesn't mean we should cancel ourselves. And a, a wise teacher once said to me, you know, when you look at a person, you want to look at where they have come from, where they are, and what direction they're going. And he compared it to say like a person had the advantage of good Christian parents, good Christian education, solid Christian formation, and that person has really become lukewarm, kind of in the middle, not doing great as we would call it. But then look at another person who had none of those advantages, in fact, had every kind of handicap you can imagine, but he's in the same place. In other words, that person, look where he's come from and look where he's heading. And really, he's in better shape than the man who has all those advantages is going backwards, and this man is going forwards. And so, as I mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there was a great injury with original sin in Genesis chapter 3, and the whole scope of revelation in the scriptures is the rebuilding enterprise. So if God is being patient, he doesn't want to unravel us. He wants to bring us to the point of restoring us, of transforming us, and that takes progression. Um, I'm a person, I'm kind of like, if it needs to get done tomorrow, I want to do it today, but God isn't like that. He has a big plan, and he wants to lead us in a pastoral way, the good shepherd leading us in progress to things. Now, before we even get back to the role of the good and the evil wife in Sirach, I want to give you an example of the progression of revelation in Scripture, and probably the easiest to demonstrate is revenge. In the Old Testament, there was, I'm talking about way back, unlimited revenge. So if you came and killed my dog, well, I would go back and kill your whole flock. Or if you injured my sister, I would exterminate your clan. In other words, out of control, unlimited revenge. And we have an example of this in Genesis 4. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, this is Lamech speaking, Lamech is going to be revenged 77-fold, over-the-top revenge. Now, I just quoted you Genesis 4. Okay, All you have to do is turn one page back in the Bible, and you find original sin, and immediately you have this devastating, irrational lack of limits with revenge. So then you move forward in the Bible. And this is where you need to really recognize where progression is taking place. You come to something like Leviticus 24. It says, when a man causes a disfigurement in his neighbor, as he is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has disfigured a man, he shall be disfigured. Well, you might say, well, that's very primitive. Well, in a way, it is primitive, but it's not as primitive 
as Lamech in Genesis 4. God is trying to restrain the evil tendencies in the human heart. And so he's trying to put a lid on unlimited revenge. It only can be kind for kind. Now you say, well, revenge isn't Christian. That's true. But God is bringing us to a point. Then you come, I would say, call this stage three, and we're in the new covenant, and Jesus came to repair the human heart, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel have wonderful prophecies about this new heart that Jesus would give us. So, in Matthew 18, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Because Peter's getting getting the picture. You know, it's no longer unlimited revenge. It's no longer eye for an eye. We have to extend forgiveness. So Peter says, as many as seven times? I mean, that's really the tolerable level, right? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, okay? 490 times. And if you're clever, Matthew 18 is reflecting right back to Genesis 4. Jesus has now brought us back to being the human beings created in the image and likeness of God. We were not created to exercise unlimited revenge, but before the new heart was given in the new covenant, God put a limit on it through the Old Testament law. You can only do eye for an eye, not eye for a whole body, okay? And so when we come to the New Testament, you not only have forgiveness, like Peter suggested seven times. I thought that was pretty good. Jesus takes it, no, unlimited forgiveness, 490 times. All right, that I think is pretty clear. It was easy to explain that. Now let's move to marriage, because the same thing works with marriage. Now, in Genesis 4, remember, we're right back to where we were again. We're just turning the page from Genesis 3, where original sin was. Lamech, the same guy, says Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the other was Zillah. This was the beginning of polygamy. Okay, so You have sin, original sin in Genesis 3. You have polygamy in Genesis 4. That didn't take long, did it? And this is in the same context, the same paragraph, so to speak, where Lamech talks about, if anybody wounds me, they're going to get it 77-fold. No, no. This is what happens when sin is unrestrained, okay? It's going to affect the marital relationships. Polygamy is one of those. So as you move through, just like the law with revenge tried to put a limit, it couldn't eliminate, but tried to put a limit on the sinful tendencies, the law put down regulations, for instance, in Deuteronomy 24, and wanted to slow the process down. Just an example, in Deuteronomy 24, if a man divorced his wife, okay, and another man married her, he couldn't take her back and marry her. In other words, he couldn't do, you know, trading back and forth a wife between somebody of his. Um, You know, women were being abused through illegitimate divorces back then anyhow, and didn't want to humiliate them and, and 
basically hurt them further. So God had legislation to try to slow the process down. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. Is eye for an eye? Tooth for a tooth perfect? No, it isn't. But you look what direction it's going. What what is God leading us to? Well, then you come to the new covenant. And this is especially important when it comes to marriage, because I've already mentioned, but it's, it's worth mentioning again, one of the chief blessings of the new covenant is that God gives us a new heart. So we're not looking at simply trying to restrain evil all the time. And unfortunately, a lot of us, both Protestant and Catholic, have a view of the Christian life of trying to simply restrain our heart versus asking God to give life to our new heart so we can live in him. And just so you know, that's what the Eucharist is all about, that God gives us his grace, his strength, his body, his blood, to nourish us so we can live like he lives, so our hearts can beat like his beats. And it is going to affect marriage in the most profound way. Now, I didn't catch this uh, initially. I, I don't know if you're aware, but I've studied marriage and divorce and remarriage for many years. And as a Protestant youth minister, I came to see that it's really important, if at all possible, to try to hold Christian parents together in marriage. Because whatever youth ministries try to do or can do, what I was trying to do as a youth minister was only secondary to mom and dad. And if that marriage would split, it would become really, really difficult. So as a young Protestant minister, I studied this topic quite a bit. And to be honest, I swallowed one of the Protestant arguments for the permission to divorce in certain circumstances. And guess which passage was used, was advocated to me by other Protestant scholars about the permission of divorce? It was Matthew 20, excuse me, Deuteronomy 24. Now, when the Pharisees come up and tested Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19, the passage they have in mind is Deuteronomy 24. Just remember, Steve Wood was taught, and I swallowed it at the time. I came out of that, but I swallowed it at the time that Deuteronomy 24 was a passage that Christians could use to justify divorce. So let's see this encounter. Matthew 19 The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, made them from the beginning? The beginning is before Genesis 3, before the disturbance in the human heart and mind took place as a result of original sin. And so Jesus is actually going back to the beginning because what did he come to do? He came to heal and transform the human heart. And again, just to put this in context, yes, Sirach sounds very harsh to modern ears and women had it harsh in the ancient world, but there's also some hints in Sirach, some strong hints 
of the change that was to come. There's both sides. Some were just negative in the ancient world. So in any case, I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Matthew 19. And Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And again, Jesus is going back to the beginning, Genesis 2. But then the Pharisees said to him, ah, but why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Moses allowed divorce, and they're referring to Deuteronomy 24, the interim legislation. They're saying this is permanent. No, Jesus said, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Do you see how the Bible works? You know, there's a long stretch from the book of Genesis, starting with original sin, where things really went haywire. It affected our human relations. What could justify wiping out another clan because you may be injured, maybe seriously, uh, uh, an individual of your neighboring clan. I mean, where's the rationality in that? There is no rationality, but that's the human condition as a result of Genesis 3. So God put limitations on that. Deuteronomy 24 was not for people with new hearts. The heart of stone, as the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel relay, the hearts of stone were still there in the Old Testament. And so Deuteronomy 24 was trying to make the world a better place while people had hearts of stone. But Jesus came giving the new heart, and he said, it's because of your hard heart that Moses allowed you. If you call yourself Christian in the new covenant, and I don't care if you call yourself a Protestant Christian, a Catholic Christian, you are given a new heart by Jesus, and you can't claim hard-hearted Deuteronomy 24 for a reason for scriptural permission for divorce. You got it all wrong. You're missing the whole flow of scripture, and you don't want to jump back to treating your wife like, or attitude towards a wife like Sirach 25, nor do you want to jump back to Deuteronomy 24 about finding the permission for divorce. Because the idea is God in Jesus Christ was bringing such abundant grace that permeates and leavens and transforms without fruitless revolutions and the ravages of civil war. And you find that dynamism, Jesus had one of the shortest parables in the New Testament. In Matthew 13, it's like a woman took a little bit of leaven and put it in a huge glob of dough and that little bit leavens the whole thing, and that's what Jesus came to do. This isn't like striking, you know, sound and light show, but no, it's it's hidden, it's quiet, but it has a dynamism that transforms, and that was God's plan from the beginning. But as a good shepherd, he led us as fast and as far as we could be led, and so in the meantime, you have some things like Sirach chapters 25 and 26, and that was simply trying to put the lid 
on human tendencies. Okay, that was it. Now, when you get to the New Testament for marriage, uh, remember I told you there's a hint in Sirach when he compares a good wife to one of the furnishings of the holy temple. This was something kind of unheard of. That's a metaphor that's uh, really, really incredible, uh, and particularly in the ancient world. Well, it's incredible till you come to something like Ephesians 5. Now you see it restored. This is where God was heading from the beginning. And I'll just talk about the husbands here. (laughs) It says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wow, that's a challenge. And for this man, St. Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's talking about the marriage union. But the next verse, this mystery is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is where I told you that hint was in the Old Testament in Sirach, comparing a good wife to one of the holy objects in the temple. Now, this is taking it a bit further, but it's the same direction, that marriage, a good wife and a good husband in a Christian marriage, it's an image It's a living icon, living and breathing with a new heart given by Jesus, referring to Christ and his church, his holy church, and the holy son of God, Jesus Christ, comparing marriage to. This is where it was heading when Lamech took his two wives and became the first polygamist, one chapter after the fall into original sin. And so we don't want to just cancel out everything because this is what God is doing, but just make sure that you don't pick out of context an Old Testament passage that was limiting the sinful hard-heartedness, the condition of the human heart in the Old Covenant. It's there. It's encouraging because it's going to something great, but don't pick on it as your life map for living in the new covenant today. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 357 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.